Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through to 26 this morning. This is where we will be uh, primarily looking at for our sermon today. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. This is, of course, the Apostle Paul writing. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labour. Yet what shall I choose? Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's pray before we study these words together. Please join me. Lord God, as we look at this beautiful, amazing passage in the letter of the Paul wrote to the Philippians this morning, we ask that you might grant us a real and deep and true understanding of these words. We pray that we might adopt an attitude, just as Paul does here, that we might be convinced that to live is Christ and to die is gain and to live accordingly to that conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shame and honour. Now, when we hear the words shame and honour, which in many ways are the opposites of one another, if your mind's like mine, it might turn towards Eastern cultures. Now, perhaps places like Tokyo, which, of course, due to the Olympics, are on TV quite a lot at the moment. Perhaps you leave shame and honour in Eastern cultures and may not think about it as part of our world in which we live today, particularly in Western culture in Australia. Now, while we might not think about it in as, as black and white terms, I'd actually propose that shame and honour are very much alive and kicking in Australian culture. Have you ever said no to doing something with your mates? Or latest friends, perhaps if you don't want to say mates. The, the response is often to attempt to shame you into participating. Have you ever done something, or maybe if you're more sensible than me, just seen someone doing something, which in hindsight is really, really dumb, and the person comes out of the other side of that unscathed, or having sustained minimal damage at least, what's the response? What a legend! We honour that person for what they've done. Shame and honour are not abstract ideas when it comes to how we interact with people. We live in a world where shame and honour, whether we use those terms or not, are attributed to pretty much everything. You get embarrassed, you hang your head in what? Shame. You get celebrated for success, you're being honoured. Now you might be wondering if a week away from face-to-face -face physical contact with people has done my head in at this point. 
You might be wondering if I know I'm meant to be preaching on Philippians this morning. Now, I don't believe I'm any more affected now than I was going into lockdown a week ago. And I do know that I'm meant to be preaching on Philippians. Now, I'm talking about shame and honour because Paul has spoken using similar language in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. Now, you might be looking at those verses right now, having heard me say that, going, well, Paul does say ashamed. He does use the word ashamed. But there's no honour used in this text here. Well, stick with me, because we do see honour. Though the word is not used, honour is present within this text. Now, this might be an obvious statement, but verse 19 does continue on in the letter of Philippians from where we left off in verse 18. Now, I do believe it's appropriate to have a break between verses 18 and 19. The, uh, the divisions we see in our Bibles, the, the, the later editions, but I do think it's helpful to, to, to have a bit of a break there. Although we must remember, as I said last week, this is part of Paul's his mission update, his, his mission journey update to people who have been supporting him on the mission field. So verses 12 through to 26, while it's helpful to have that break between verses 18 and 19, do have a lot of consistency between them. Now, one way in which we can try and look at these as um, a collective unit, I found it was really helpful to to read Alec Mottier, and he suggests this, which I thought was good. He thinks verse 12 is Paul talking about the past. Verses 13 to 18, Paul is talking about what's happening in the present, and verse as well as what that means for the future. We're primarily talking about the present, and verses 19 to 26 are looking to the future looking ahead. So there is a link between them all. And Paul is now clearly looking to tell us about what's to come. And what's to come for Paul? Well, what's to come, you know, something. That this will turn out, for my, that is Paul's, deliverance. That this that's going to turn out for his deliverance is his captivity. Chains will turn out for his deliverance. Interesting concept for us to start with this morning. Now, just quickly about uh, about the Greek here. In every language, you can't really do a completely literal, direct translation uh, from one language to another because you would make something which is very literal in one language sound idiomatic or just not make sense in the language you're translating it into, or you'd make something idiomatic very literal. Now, if we were to be literal here, Paul would be saying that this, his captivity, will turn around into his salvation. It would turn around into, not just turn out, and salvation rather than deliverance. It gets a little bit confusing. Now, the turn around into, Greek is a very directional language. To, from, into, forward, all that sort of stuff is there. Turn out is a really fine translation of those words there. It's sort of talking about the outcome. It's going to result in his deliverance. But deliverance, the, the word that Paul uses there is soteria. It's salvation. If you're in a, a Bible college setting and someone says, we're going to learn about the doctrine or the teaching of soteriology, we'd be learning all about salvation of souls primarily. But the word can also be translated as deliverance, which I think fits 
the context of what Paul's writing from a lot better. He's in prison. He's looking at deliverance from those circumstances. He doesn't need to be saved from sin in the way that you'd normally use that word. But he is using it for a reason. Paul's using this word for a reason. And that reason is he wants people to think bigger. He wants people to think bigger than day-to-day struggles. Perhaps this is something we can resonate right now with. Because we may feel imprisoned in our homes right now. Perhaps some of you are really enjoying it. Perhaps you're like me and champing it a bit a bit to get out. I'm not sure where you're at, but I think regardless whether we're enjoying this or not, I think there's something here for us to really hold on to. Now, the actual deliverance that Paul's talking about here is one of those ones that he puts fairly vaguely in a lot of ways, and commentators have a lot of possible takes on what he's talking about. Some are more difficult to reconcile in your mind than others. But Paul uses this really high-powered salvation term here, as I said just a minute ago, to get us thinking big, to get us thinking eternal, to get us thinking confidently as we look to the future of our lives. Now, just as his imprisonment has not been of any detriment to his mission journey, as we saw last week, his imprisonment is not going to have a detrimental impact on Paul's future either. He can confidently say this because whether whether he dies in prison or is released from prison, it is a deliverance for him. Delivered from the chains or delivered into glory. As we look at this just a little bit further before we move on, the main reference to deliverance here seems to be Paul's perseverance in the faith resulting in uh, what Silver, that's Silver with an A at the end of it, a commentator, uh, refers to often in his commentary as the magnification of Christ, which Paul does talk about here, that Christ will be magnified in verse 20. That's why Paul is here where he is. That's why Paul had been doing what he'd been doing, to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. In that, Paul has freedom and deliverance, not in anything else. Now, if we do look at the idea of deliverance in in chapter 4, verse 6, it's not that Paul's completely written off any chance of being free from prison, but it seems when we get to chapter 4, verse 6, that he's not really expecting he'll be delivered from his chains. But still, he confidently knows he will be delivered. And see, this this is at the core of Paul's faith. Because just as God has delivered and is delivering Paul for, for his purposes and glory, Paul confidently says that will keep happening as I seek to advance the gospel. And then he launches from verse 19 into some of the most amazing verses in Scripture, particularly verse 21. I know that in chapter 4 of Philippians, there are some great verses there. And for some people, they go straight to chapter 4 to pick out their favourite parts of this letter. But to be honest with you, I don't think I could 
very easily choose a single favourite part of this letter. Because right from chapter 1, we're seeing joy sing, we're seeing thankfulness, we're seeing more than just happiness that can fade. We're going beyond all those things. It's just challenging us to look big the whole way through. But Paul continues from verse 19. He, he, he continues on from that theme of deliverance into verse 20, where he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. And that awesome verse 21, for, for, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a wonderful, beautiful thing for Paul to write. There are two wonderful truths there that are a reality for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for every single day of your life if you believe in Christ. There are two truths there that comfort us and inspire confidence in every single Christian. At the end of the day, Paul says going through life as a Christian comes with this awesome, unexpected win-win factor. Paul knows that there are people, Paul has suffered at the hands of people who despise Christ. Paul has previously been one of these people. Paul knows there are people, and again, has previously been one of these people, who despise those who follow Christ. Interestingly, those people really need to see and know Christ. And Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, to continue living is to be an example, an ambassador of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells them there to, to follow him as he follows Christ. That means if we follow what Paul, particularly these parts that are inspired by Scripture, if we follow Paul's teachings, inspired by the Spirit rather, if we follow Paul's teachings, we are following Christ. Paul is following Christ. If we follow Paul, we're heading in the same direction. Christ revealed in the clearest way possible as much truth of God as our small, finite minds could handle and then some. To live is Christ. means that we not only get to share the gospel every single day, it also means that we get to, to reach non-believers as well as to encourage Christians every single day. And can I encourage you to do both of those things, to reach the lost and to encourage and build up the church. Now you might be saying we're in lockdown. We are in lockdown, but you can still talk to your neighbour. If your neighbour goes down the side of your house, sorry, I am gesturing to the side of my house here. If your neighbour goes down the side of their house and you weren't planning on going outside, but there's an opportunity to talk to them, particularly if this continues, go and say hello. 
even if they are like one of my neighbors who I've introduced myself six times and they keep saying it's nice to finally meet you every time. That's okay. Go and say hello. Share the gospel. Find ways to talk to them about the beauty found in God. And while your brothers and sisters in the church are perhaps further away than your neighbors over the fence, live for Christ to them too. Call them, text them, FaceTime them, Zoom them. Do that thing my generation knows pretty much nothing about. Write an actual letter. And if you can't get to the post office, send it. There are so many things that living for Christ means, but ultimately is about putting him first. Paul in prison knows that, that so long as there is breath in his lungs, he will be able to live for Christ and that through him and his faithful services, things enabled by the Holy Spirit, Christ will be magnified. He knows that there will be fruit that comes from his continued labor because God is the one who brings the increase. Yes, Paul's circumstances are far from ideal. Yes, our circumstances are far from ideal. But as we preach the gospel, we preach it having confidence in God who brings the increase. So preach the gospel. Tell others about the fullness of Scripture. We see Paul not wanting to just throw his life away. He doesn't want to just throw it away. He doesn't want to waste his life. But he also brings reality to this. Which is the other side of the win-win for every Christian. Living or dying are both blessings for the Christian. In verse 23, Paul basically says, Guys, I'm having a tough time, which I prefer. I'm having a tough time choosing which one I prefer to be with because I know that if I go to be with Christ, that if my life is taken from me, if I'm killed, whether it's in chains or if I get released from here, if I'm killed, then being with Christ, that is far better. She touches on a beautiful truth. As Christians, we do not fear death. We should not fear death. But as long as Paul's here, he's going to keep serving the Lord with the, the thankfulness and the rejoicing that he's shown us so clearly through the first 18 verses of this chapter. Now, perhaps it doesn't make sense to you why... Paul would be having a tough time making his mind up which he prefers, whether it's continuing to serve Christ here on earth or, or being with God in glory. I mean, in some ways it makes sense. Being with God in glory, it, Paul even says that that's better. Why is, this a, why is he struggling to, to choose between the two? Maldi, it, it doesn't seem like it's a difficult decision to make. You can continue here on earth, but it's hardships, where there's difficulties. Paul's wrongfully imprisoned right now, where there is sin in so many places. We look, surely being with God, where none of those things are anymore, wins out every time. Well, another beautiful thing we saw from Paul last week was that Paul 
had not done what, what he had done leading up to his imprisonment, seeking his own comfort. Paul wasn't in prison, keeping his mouth shut about the gospel because that's what had got him there in the first place. And maybe if I'm quiet about the gospel, they'll let me out early on good behaviour. No, he continues to preach the gospel in chains. See, none of what Paul's done leading up to or in his current circumstances have been about his comfort. It's been about advancing the kingdom, taking the gospel that people might hear and believe and that God's kingdom, the church, might grow numerically and strengthen spiritually. Verse 24 to 26 shows us, particularly verse 24, why this is a hard thing for Paul to decide. Because the need of the church for Paul is great. They need Paul. Now, you might think this is a little bit of an arrogant statement for Paul to make, perhaps like what we read in, in, the, in the Torah where Moses describes himself as the most humble man on the earth. If you wrote that, Moses, really, but there is a reality here. They need Paul. Now, when I looked at this, I was reminded of myself when I was in year 12, in the opposite way of Paul, by the way. When I was in year 12, I captained our high school volleyball team. And at the end of every game, the coach would ask me who deserved to be named the player of the match, the man of the match. Now, I valued myself a lot, and without fail, I named me. Now, I did also acknowledge other guys who'd done a good job on the court that day, and I was only joking some of the time when I named myself as man of the match, and it really annoyed the coach. To be honest with you, the fact that it annoyed the coach probably inspired me to do it way past the point it stopped being funny. It's an inflated ego, isn't it? But Paul is not writing that the church's need for him is because of his own inflated ego, his own inflated sense of self-worth. The church is in its early days. He knew that as an apostle, which was a limited time office, not a continuing one, there are no apostles today, he was actually needed by the church. And you look at what he's doing. Even in prison, he's taking the gospel to Gentiles. He is a Jewish man willing to take the gospel to Gentiles. It's unbelievable in many ways, but this is what Paul did. The Gentile church had a great need of him. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. All through these verses... Paul speaks confidently, and we know why. Because whatever happens, Christ will be magnified, and that matters more than anything else. He seems to know that somehow they'll see each other again. And it's a time of rejoicing when they'll see each other again. But not in rejoicing the way of a, a friend's reunion. <laughs> I just had one of those for the TV show Friends a few weeks ago. And not, not in the, the way you'd normally have a friend rejoicing. Think if we made it work, we managed to get together. What a wonderful thing we organised. No, when they, re when they meet together, they'll be rejoicing in Jesus who will have made that possible. Rejoicing in his goodness. Rejoicing in his merciful kindness to his children, to his people. And in the end. In the end, what Paul teaches us here is we look towards the future. 
is that we don't know the circumstances, but what we know is that because Christ will be glorified, because Christ will be magnified through our faithful example, shame is not part of the Christian life. Paul is looking to the future. He's looking at what opportunities for service might lie ahead, whether that's many or few, whether his days are, are limited for a short time or he has a bit longer yet to go. He doesn't know all the deeds, but he does know some amazing truths. For the one who loves and lives for God, there is no shame. And just as Christ is magnified and glorified and honoured, so too is Paul and every other believer. So often we, 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 we live in the fear of bringing shame upon what we represent or bringing shame upon ourselves because of our choices. As Christians, the, the name, as the name suggests, the one we represent is Christ, who is God. We are God's representatives. We, we, we need to make sure that we work out our faith as good ambassadors for him and ask that the Spirit might lead us in those ways, which Paul talks about more as we go through this. But as we consider it now, what that looks like is sharing the gospel. What it looks like is caring for it and speaking up for those who are vulnerable. While the world may consider us shameful and shamed because of those things. Remember verse 21. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. We receive great honour as Christians because of our awesome God and because of the completed work of Christ on the cross where sin and death have been defeated. So take hold of this part of Philippians 1. Take hold of this, and whatever comes tomorrow, whether we have the lockdown lift at four o'clock this afternoon or not, whatever comes tomorrow, live for him. Be confident in him as Paul was. Grab hold of every single chance we get to tell people the gospel. We might cop flack for it now. But copping flack for it now when you consider eternity and you consider that God has spared his people from eternal shame, that's worth it. You see, we have the joy of serving him as long as we're alive. And the bigger joy of absolute perfection in the very presence of Christ when we die. Rejoice in Jesus. Rejoice in what he has done as we look forward to another week full of opportunities God has blessed us with to serve him. Pray and work hard that he might be magnified. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this tremendous attitude that Paul has even in chains. To be able to so confidently say that to live is Christ and to die is gain is an attitude which we hope and pray is one which is 
is present in each and every one of us. Lord God, work in us for your glory. Work in us that you might be magnified. Work in us that people might see you and know you and love you and join with us in the beautiful work we do of proclaiming the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.